Good morning. I'm glad to hop in on this sermon series in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai and ask you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Might help if I don't fold up my sermon pages oddly. Sorry. Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. We will be looking at verses 13 through 31. This is God's word, eternally true. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Well, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, All these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother and father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive A hundredfold now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've not left us alone in this world to wonder who you are and to wonder who we are, but that you've revealed to us through your word who you are, and what that means for us. So I pray in these moments you would move upon us by your Spirit to awaken us to the beauty and majesty of Jesus all the more, that we might cast off all the things that we hold on to in this world to receive from you the grace that he and he alone has for us. I pray all this in his matchless name. Amen. So kids, I'm going to tell you a secret that you might not know. Adults are terrible at receiving presents. Adults are really bad at receiving gifts. 
Kids are really good at receiving gifts. You give a gift to a kid, they tear it into the box, they might, you know, shout with joy, they might giddily laugh, they might cry, they might do all those things. Kids are really good at receiving gifts, but not adults. You give me a gift, I'm immediately thinking, well, how much did this cost? Doing the math in my head, saying, well, I bought them a gift that was $15, and this is $50 easy. Huh. So I'm, a dude, I'm immediately thinking, okay, we're, we're in this you know, back-and-forth reciprocal thing now. Or I'm thinking, I really need to pull out the, the nice card stock for this thank-you note. So they'll be impressed when they get the thank-you note. They'll say, yeah, this is, this is great. Um, it's to the point that when adults receive gifts, a lot of times we cannot even enjoy the gift because we're immediately caught up in this weird cycle. We can't enjoy the gift for what it is. A gift that someone has given to us. But not kids. Kids are great at receiving gifts. When I was a kid, um, my maternal grandfather, he lived in Savannah, where my mom's family's from. And we would go to visit a couple times a year. I called him Papa Stevens. He called me Wahoo for some reason. And um, every time we'd go, at the end of the visit, he would slip me five bucks. You know, in 1990, as a seven-year-old, that was like a small fortune. Take me to Walmart. I'm getting a Ninja Turtle right now, $5. Um, but he, th- this was a regular pattern. We saw Papa Stevens, ended the visit, Papa Stevens, 5 bucks to me. I'm filthy rich. So I remember being about 8 years old, and we're at one of these visits, and it's time for it to end. And uh, I'm confused because Papa Stevens has not given me the $5 yet. So all the adults are in the kitchen talking about adult things, and I saunter up. And I'm sure I put on my little sad face and I walked up. He said, Wahoo, what's wrong? He pulled me up to him. I said, Papa Stevens, where's my money? (laughs) Now, he didn't scold me for being ungrateful. He knew I was a child. He knew that I was asking this honestly with no pretense. I didn't have an angle I was trying to work. He knew that I, as an eight-year-old, knew that he loved me and that he was generous. That's what I knew about my Papa Stevens. Our entire relationship was defined by his generosity. So for that reason, he was glad to give me the gift because I knew how to receive it. Now, my mom, my mom was horrified, proper southern woman that she is. You know, I'm trying to shake down my grandpa as an eight-year-old for five bucks. (laughs) But not really. He understood, though. I knew how to receive this gift with joy, even when I missed the social cues altogether. I was just happy to get it, and I knew it was coming because he was generous. So he roared with laughter. He reached for his wallet. I think he gave me 10 bucks that time, actually. Um, so it worked. No, but the, the point is, in this text this morning, uh, a lot like what Jesus is trying to say, the way to receive his kingdom, the way to come to him, to reflect that we have our faith in him, the way to, to receive salvation for him, is to come to him without pretense, without walking into some kind of game of reciprocity, this back and forth paying back, to come to him without our respectable you know, uh, reputations. We come to him as children. We come to Jesus as children or we don't come at all. We come to him as children who are delighted to receive the gift from God, the God that we know is generous. So that's the, that's the long and short of it. Um, and we'll see that, I think, through three interactions that Jesus has in this passage. The first one's... Jesus with the children. The second is Jesus with the rich man that he interacts with. And the third one is Jesus and the disciples. 
and I think we'll learn this, that because Jesus has made it clear that the only way to receive his kingdom is as a gift provided by him in every way, that we have to give up trying to find other ways of approaching him. We have to give that up. So first, let's look at Jesus and the children. Let's set the scene. Beginning of Mark 10, Jesus' ministry has been going on for a couple years. He's gathered a fair amount of people around him. And at the beginning of this chapter, he's teaching on some very adult important things. Um, Specifically, the topic of divorce. This is the most adult of adult topics. Um, And think of it, it's like a modern day, Jesus is doing a TED Talk. Um, People are surrounding him, they're hanging on his every word. Verse 13 tells us that in the middle of this big important meeting, people started bringing what, their children, so that Jesus might touch them. In the middle of this big, important seminar that Jesus is putting on, people are bringing their kids and just like tossing them at Jesus so that he'll touch them. All this big and grown-up, real important stuff, and here are these children with all their rambunctiousness, children with all their delight, children with all their distractions and their outside voices, they're running They're playing, they're crying, somebody's pulling somebody's hair, somebody's rolling around in the dirt. And the disciples, who I'm sure feel very big and very important, they begin to rebuke the people who were bringing their children to Jesus. After all, they're talking about big, important adult stuff. Children just get in the way. Kids had no business being here interrupting this important time. If we look in the Gospel of Luke, he records the same event, and he says these weren't just children that the people were bringing. They were bringing babies. They were bringing babies into this big, important discussion. What can these babies add to this discussion? But Jesus would have none of it. In fact, look at verse 14. It says that he was, what, indignant. He's not just aggravated at the disciples. He's offended. He's grieved. He's he's even furious that they are rebuking the people that are bringing these kids. And why was Jesus so upset? Why would such a thing as his disciples doing their job, making sure things are quiet and orderly and respectable while he's teaching, why would that upset him so? Well, it's because rebuking these children and sending them away struck against the very heart of what Jesus is all about. As he says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is theirs. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The disciples had missed the crucial point that the kingdom of God was not um, a place for a bunch of respectable people. um, To be respectable and listen to the social cues and get everything right. No, the kingdom of God belongs to these children. Children who are perhaps the most vulnerable people in our society. Children in all their helplessness, in all their smallness, in all their dependence. Think about it. Kids, don't be insulted. Kids are the most unproductive members of households. They don't bring income in. They eat all the food in the fridge, right? Amen. I have a 19-month-old. They contribute nothing to the economy or to the household bottom line children are small they're small but not only does the kingdom belong to them the only way to into this kingdom over which jesus is king is to come to him like a child we come to jesus like children or we don't come at all 
As the pastor, Will Willeman, wrote, it's as if Jesus wanted to say, you want to get into my kingdom? The only way to get into my kingdom is to be very small, very little, very needy. There will be no adults in my kingdom. No self-sufficient, liberated, autonomous, independent adults. There will only be children. Here is a kingdom with a very small door. The disciples had tried to rebuke the children, and Jesus flips the script by placing the kids in the very middle and saying, don't only not send them away, but you better receive this kingdom like them. It's the only way to receive my grace. Now, don't get Jesus wrong. He's not idealizing childhood. He's not romanticizing it as some kind of time of innocence or perfection. Children are not perfect. And all the parents said, amen. But his larger point is this. Children are content to receive a gift as a gift and not to pretend that it's something else. Children are content to receive a gift as a gift. And this is the proper way for all of us to receive salvation from God. It's the proper way for us to enter the kingdom to receive it as a gift. So that's Jesus and the children. Let's look at uh, Jesus and the rich man. If I asked you um, to describe somebody that's valuable to the kingdom of God, what characteristics would you begin to list? Now, I think all of us know the right answer. We would say, well, nobody's more important than anybody else. Everybody has different gifts. Everybody, you know. But if we're honest, if I'm honest, I've got a list. You guys are doing an assistant pastor search before too long. You probably have a list in your head. And my list looks like this. Somebody who's resourceful. Somebody who has a lot of stuff that they can get to, that that can be useful for the kingdom. Somebody that's well-respected and well-connected. They can network well. Somebody with a great reputation that's influential. They have a name. People look to them as a thought leader. Somebody that is wealthy or energetic. My list is the person who stands to contribute the most, the one who has the most to offer to help the kingdom expand and grow, the person who has it all together, the person with no problems and only, uh, only things that they can add to the equation. And as we'll see later on, the disciples actually answer this question in the same way. They had a clear idea about what the kind of person the kingdom of God was for looked like. And that person is in our passage. Look at verse 17. We meet him here. We meet him what? Not as a child that's being brought in and distracting everything. He, he's somebody who knows how to act around an important person. He runs to Jesus and he engages with him in this honorific title. He doesn't come like a kid screaming. He says, oh, good teacher. In verse 20, he tells Jesus that he's kept all the commandments that that Jesus just listed. So this is a good moral man. In verse 22, he tells us plainly, he's wealthy and resourced. This is a rich person. He has a lot to offer. He can fund ministries, guys. That's important to me. He can get important people to listen because he's an important person. So he's young, he's rich, he's influential, he's moral. He knows how to interact with an important person. He's who you want on the team. Well, let's back up again. Look at verse 17. He calls Jesus good teacher. What's he doing here? He's trying to to get into this reciprocal uh, exchange with Jesus. He'll say, good teacher. And Jesus will say, oh, my good man. It's the way you interact with somebody that you respect. But the man's rebuffed. Jesus refuses to play this game. He calls him to question in verse 18. What does Jesus say? Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. 
Now, Jesus is not saying, I'm not God. What Jesus is saying is, is he's refusing to engage the, the man the way the man wants to. And he's telling him, you call me good, I do not think you realize what you're saying. Because if that man really thought that Jesus was the good teacher, then the man's approaching Jesus and asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In verse 17, it makes no sense. Why? Because Jesus had just answered that question. Jesus had literally just answered this question. And the man was present. When Jesus said, you have to receive the kingdom as a child, the man was there. He had heard what Jesus said, and he did not like the answer. He didn't like that Jesus had told him that he had to receive the kingdom like a child with nothing in his hands. He did not like that he had to receive the kingdom as a gift and not as a paycheck. Jesus had shattered this man's thoughts about who he was and how he related to God and to others. Like I said, this man was wealthy. He had made a name for himself. He had spent a lot of time and energy. In fact, he had spent his whole life building all this stuff up, how can Jesus say that he had to receive the kingdom like a little child? And so he chased after Jesus, who's now done teaching Jesus, who's continuing on his way to meet Jesus in private. He was approaching Jesus to say, but what about me? I heard what you said to them, that they have to receive the kingdom like, a, like little children, that, that crowd. But what about me? What must I do for eternal life? Because surely the rules are different for me. So Jesus engages him in verse 19. And what does he say? You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Mother. That's a hefty list. What was Jesus doing? Well, Jesus lists these commands apparently with the expectation that the man coming with such an honest face-to-face encounter with these beautiful commandments, will go, well, now that you say it, Jesus, you're right. I can only come as a child because there's no way I fulfilled all of that. But this respectable, good, moral man will not be denied his self-importance. Look at his response in verse 20. Teacher. Notice he doesn't call Jesus good teacher anymore. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. He's apparently convinced that he's lived his whole life without mishap, without sinning against anyone ever, without messing up at all. He's kept them, quote, since his youth. Right here, he is directly challenging Jesus. Jesus had just said, you cannot receive the kingdom unless you receive it as a child. And here the man is saying, yes, I understand what you're saying, but I've done a whole lot of good stuff since I was a child. In fact, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. Verse 21 tells us something baffling. Jesus looks at this man with his pride and his self-sufficiency, this man who's directly challenging him and says that he loves him. And he tells them this one final thing that gets at the very, very heart of the matter. He says, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Sell all that you have. In other words, Strip yourself of these things that you look for, for identity and security. Toss off your wealth. You cannot come to me and receive the kingdom loaded down with all of this. You have to become weak. You have to become vulnerable. You have to become dependent. You have to be small. You have to become small.
And with this, Jesus reveals the very center of the issue. This respectable, successful, wealthy man harbors idols in his heart. He worships false gods. And he cannot come to Jesus and receive the gift of salvation and cling to that idol. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. He has to be stripped of the weight. The man is once again disappointed. He had approached Jesus because he assumed that receiving the kingdom like a child did not apply to him. Surely there was another way. But no, instead, Jesus tells him plainly, your wealth, your possessions, your status, all these supposedly good things, they're going to kill you. Cast it off to receive life. And these words prove too hard. Look at verse 22, one of the saddest instances of interaction with Jesus. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So that's, we've got Jesus and the children. We have Jesus and the rich man. Well, let's look at Jesus and the disciples. Jesus then turns after this to his disciples who've apparently been there this whole time, listening in and watching this interaction. And he says this, verse 23, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24 says that the disciples were amazed at this. To make his point, Jesus says it again, but he heightens it. He says, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The image in this verse is supposed to sound as silly as you think it does. A camel through the eye of a needle. It's absurd. It's even worse than absurd. It's impossible. And now the disciples that were amazed by his words in verse 24, they're described now as exceedingly astonished. They are blown away at what Jesus has just said. Why? Because if anybody, if anybody could get into the kingdom, it was the man who just walked away sorrowfully. He was the embodiment of the things that they held dear. He was the embodiment of the values that they thought were important. He was good. He was moral. And now Jesus was saying that it was impossible for the kind of person that they looked up to to enter to the kingdom of God. And that's why they ask in verse 26, then who can be saved? If not this guy, what hope is there for me? And Jesus responds with the often quoted verse 27, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. You've probably seen this verse. You could probably go to Hobby Lobby right now and they've got it printed on a pillow. You've heard it quoted before because it gets quoted when people overcome incredible odds, when something miraculous happens in a church. Things are impossible with man, but not with God. All things are possible with God. But notice the context of where Jesus says this. He's saying to us even this morning that it is possible with God that we might be stripped of all the things that we build up around ourselves, that we might be made vulnerable and poor, that all things are possible with God, even the impossibility that we might set down our respectability, that we might set aside our good deeds and come to Him. Receiving salvation from Him, the only way that it can be received as a gift. All things are possible with God. One commentator I read said that this is both a threat and a promise. Or perhaps a threat with a promise. Because of this, in Jesus, God will remove from us our false idols. 
God will remove the mess that we carry around that we think is so important, and he will make us like children. He will squeeze us like camels through the eye of a needle through a very small door. And he'll do it not because we deserve it. He'll not do it because he's super impressed with us. He'll do it because of his audacious grace. And this thing doesn't this kind of thing doesn't come easily. We like being large. We like our stuff. We like being well thought of. We like being important. But Jesus will have none of it because he knows what it does to our souls. In the end, this stuff kills us. And the eternal life that he is giving us, the eternal life that he died on a cross to provide for us, that he rose from the dead to give to us, has to push out our importance and our self-sufficiency. And he'll guide us through it. But in the end, he's going to remake us into who he wants us to be. And in case we're in danger of thinking otherwise, brothers and sisters, this is sheer grace. But this is not the kind of grace that we would give ourselves. The kind of grace we'd give ourselves wouldn't go deep enough. It would be content with band-aids and minor fixes. It would be content with much less than what we truly need. But the kind of grace that God gives, it will not leave us the way we are. It will not leave us hanging on to these things that are killing us. It's a grace that forgives in Christ, but it's also a grace that cleanses and cleanses to the uttermost. Jesus knows what the junk of this world, he knows what the masks that we wear, not, not these, um, and the names that we try to build for ourselves do to us. And he is committed to saving us from our sins, and he's also committed to saving us from ourselves, from our best ideas. In verse 28, Peter speaks up as a spokesman of sorts for the disciples. And remember, at this point, the disciples have been following him for years. They've left all the stability of their livelihood to follow him. And in verse 28, he says, See, we have left everything and followed you. Peter and the disciples have been floored by what Jesus has said. The rich man, the man who was everything that they would have recognized as good and valuable, he had just made the opposite decision from them. And so now they're wondering, have we done the right thing? If this good man would not follow Jesus, then maybe we shouldn't either. Maybe the price is too high. And in verse 29, Jesus gives his disciples a great promise. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. We're going to be squeezed through this very small door like camels through the eye of a needle. But what is on the other side of this very small door? Everything he just listed. Jesus knows he's asking a lot. He knows. And he's saying to the disciples, yes, you have left me to follow everything through this very small door. And notice he even calls the disciples what? In verse 24, children. It's the only time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus calls his disciples children. He's saying, yes, you've received the kingdom like children. You've left those basic things that are the basis of survival and existence, family and property. You've left the safety of home. You've lost family members who think you're crazy. You've left the economic stability of owning and working your land. But I promise you, 
You've only given these things up in order to gain so much more. You have to go through a very small door. So small that only a child ready to receive the kingdom as a gift can get through it. And it may seem impossible, but through faith in Christ you can set aside the things you've spent a lifetime building up around you to gain security, true security, and true identity in Christ. And you can gain the unsearchable riches of God's kingdom both now and for eternity. Some closing thoughts. I mentioned at the beginning that kids are really good at receiving gifts. And one of the reasons this is is because kids receive with open hands. Open hands. Many of us, I do, I find it difficult to live life open-handedly. I've got too much important stuff that's going to get stripped away that I'm going to lose if I let go. i got too much really good stuff that I'll lose if I don't hold on to it. The call this morning to me, this call this morning to you, is to step into living open-handedly like a child. We can let go of our junk. We can let go of even the good things that we think we'll lose if we don't hold on to them. Because when we open our hands to let go, we also open our hands to receive. And we don't serve a God who's waiting to strip away stuff that we like from us. We don't serve a God who can't be trusted with what we give to him. We serve a God, a generous father, who delights to give good things to his children. And if I can trust him with my eternal destiny, I can trust him with Monday. If I can trust him with my eternal destiny, I can trust him with my life. So... Open your hands. Let go of the stuff you're holding on to. Open your hands and receive his grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this invitation. I thank you that in a world where we try to win our respectability, we try to build up stuff on our shoulders, that you understand, um, you understand the truth of our hearts. Do you understand the idolatry that we so often trade in? And I thank you that in your grace you're pulling us away from that and you're pointing our hearts to you, you in whom there is true satisfaction. So I pray that you would do this work in us, that we would abandon our hope and our good works, that we would abandon our despair and our bad works, and that we would come to you, receive forgiveness of sins in Christ, receive this hope, of eternal life and his resurrection. And that doing this, we would be content our whole lives to live with these open hands. I pray all this in his matchless name.